Hi, everybody, and welcome to SNL Funhouse, a Saturday Night Live recap podcast. My name is Mike Bloom, talking about the 15th episode of SNL 43, hosted by Sterling K. Brown with musical guest James Bay. I am joined, as per usual, by the connoisseur of rock and rap, Mario Lanza. Mario, how are you doing this week? It's very exciting to talk about it. Thank you. <laughs> it's a very, uh, very like Gale script supervisor-esque reading of that opening line. Exactly. Yes. I'm just reading what you wrote, Mike. I'm sorry. I can't do much with these lines you give me. Let's talk about this episode hosted by Sterling K. Brown. I know he was sort of a big question mark for you, Mario. You said you didn't really watch This Is Us, but you knew that he was a big SNL fan coming in. Uh, How did you think he did overall? And what did you think about this episode in general? In general, I really liked him as a host. I thought he he clearly wanted to be there. And again, it seems simple, but that's kind of the criteria for an SNL host. He really seemed to want to be there. I thought he did a good job. I This wasn't maybe my favorite episode ever, but I'm seeing a lot of positive press about it on the internet. A lot of people seem to love this one. So it's possible you'll be able to win me over on this one as we go along. I didn't think it was like anything special as an episode, but I thought everything he was in, he did well or made the material better, which again, at the end of the day, is really all you can ask from an SNL host. Yeah, I mean, coming into this, he was primarily known for his dramatic material, though he seemed like a diehard like obsessed person with this idea of coming on to Saturday Night Live it was something that he was constantly pimping out uh, every time like his Twitter got mentioned of him being on SNL I know he liked it uh, it seems like something that he has been excited about for the past couple months and that really showed on the stage I know I sound like a broken record here with this season but with these first time hosts like Sterling K. Brown or Kumail Nanjiani or Tiffany Haddish it can be so I don't know if refreshing is the right word but it can be so nice to see people genuinely excited and energetic to be there that this is a dream come true as opposed to no offense to you know your Alec Baldwin's or your Kevin Hart's or even your Larry David's or your James Franco's but when they come out that they're like yep been here done this I'm ready to go whereas you could feel this this raucous kinetic energy that I feel like he brought into the sketches uh you know this episode, I am part of that crowd, as you said. I mean, going to my SNL rankings, I had this all the way up at number two right now behind the Will Ferrell episode. And I will say wow. that in terms of writing, it wasn't necessarily there, though I feel like you could apply that to most of the season. But the energy, the delivery, and just the element of fun, which I know you discuss a lot with the Natalie Portman episode in particular, I feel like applies here where it really helped float some of that weaker writing along. So I really enjoyed getting to watch a lot of this episode. Yeah, especially towards the end of the episode, I thought it really gained momentum as it went along, just as the sketches kind of got more and more bizarre. And you could tell the performers were all having a fun time doing them. I think like it was kind of formulaic towards the start of what they normally do on SNL, but it really kind of went off the rails the second half. And again, I I appreciate that spirit on SNL. And like you said, it was... It was clearly a kind of a life-changing moment for Sterling K. Brown, as opposed to Charles Barkley, who may have this may have just been another weekend for him. Yeah, uh, where he just has to stand in front of an audience and uh, mumble out some lines. Uh, but <laughs> no offense to Charles Barkley, I think we enjoyed some parts of that last episode, mm-hmm. as we talked about previously. Let's get into the episode proper, uh, because I feel like uh, one of the reasons why you might not have been as tapped into this episode, if you don't mind me assuming, might lie with something like the cold open. Now I'm going to make, again, <laughs> a, a big wide net assumption here, Mario. You are neither a Bachelor fan nor really a political junkie. Is that correct? Yeah, let's lay a couple things on the line here. I don't really follow politics. I generally, in the spirit of Norm Macdonald, I don't really watch the news. And it's funny because despite the fact that I write about Survivor, I really don't like reality TV. So I've never seen The Bachelor in my life. So yeah, this this one perhaps was not in my wheelhouse. And I was watching it. I'm I'm thinking, okay, well, clearly this sketch isn't for me. So I will I will try to appreciate it on the merits of someone who who would really enjoy this sketch. To me, the pacing seems so slow and off that I just I was even listening to the audience kind of struggling with it. I don't think the audience was really into this one. Like they responded to the big punchlines, but you could tell they weren't really into it. But then again, I heard you were really into this. And again, you have more of a background in reality TV. So please sell me on this one, because this was one I just kind of watched and I kind of like, OK, well, that, that was kind of a mistake. But please sell me on this one, Mike. So let me give some background. If you if you or the audience is not entirely in the know as to what this is referencing. So at the Bachelor finale on Monday night, usually, you know, the the Bachelor picks one person in the end. They propose they live happily ever after or things don't necessarily work out most cases it's the latter 
But in a very unprecedented move, The Bachelor proposed to this one person, then a few months later realized he was having second thoughts, went to the person he proposed to and said, we're breaking this off and I'm going to get together with the other person, with the runner-up. And what they showed on The Bachelor was completely unedited footage of this reveal, of this confrontation, where the Bachelor Ari visits this person, Becca, in their home and just sort of breaks the news to her right there in the moment. And you have these two cameras capturing their reactions in the moment. So, I mean, to your point, yes, it was stilted, it was awkward, it was dragged out, but I kid you not, it was beat for beat how it played out on the show. So I could totally understand it from someone who had no idea what was going on. It completely did not play, but I was so happy about it. You know, my wife is a much bigger bigger Bachelor Universe fan than I am, but I decided to to watch part of it, and it was so incredibly cringeworthy. But in terms of paying homage to it, I mean, the lines that Kate and Cecily were saying to start off were pretty much word for word what the two people in the scene on The Bachelor were saying. So that's the very similitude of it really won me over in that perspective. Okay, and I can appreciate that because I like when SNL takes chances and does little things like that. And I, just the top of my head, something that I could compare it to was a couple of years ago when they had a, uh, what was it, the, the John Tesh sketch about, uh, uh, what was it? Basketball. Yeah, yeah. That was such an obscure sketch, a reference to something John Tesh like 20 years after he wrote this theme that nobody's heard in such a long time. So, again, that one spoke to me much as maybe this one spoke to you. I I don't know how big The Bachelor audience is and how much of a crossover there is with SNL. But, again, I, I respect when SNL takes ballsy chances like that and they just go for something that might not be gotten by everybody in the audience. So, yeah, I'm, I'm watching this sketch. I'm like, am I, I'm, I'm like, am I supposed to know who Becca is? I don't know who she is. I don't like – there was a lot of presumptions going into the sketch. You kind of had to know what they were referencing to make it work. It may not have worked for me, but I can, now that you explain it, I see what they were doing and I, okay, I fully support it. I'm glad they did it. And it's unique, which I think also sort of won me over. You know, I've sort of been beating the drum this entire season of let's not keep going back to the Oval Office. I want to see different takes, perhaps even non-Trumpian takes on stuff that's going on. And they sufficiently, you know, bunkoed me here where we get to we get Chris Harrison and I'm like, okay, I guess we're not doing a political sketch. And it turns out that no, it's Robert Mueller who's playing the part of Ari the Bachelor, and it's the awkward confession that he may not have the uh, the evidence for collusion. Instead, he might have to go with obstruction. So from that perspective as well, I thought it was a really, as you said, sort of ballsy, smart take on things instead of just sort of throwing somebody out there and saying, you know, this was the news of the week. I thought it was a fun sort of interplay between the two. I mean, Kate and Cecily, I've also beat the drum of the fact that I think this cast are very good actors overall. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about this idea of like actors versus comedians, you can tell that a lot of these people have a lot of acting experience. And I feel like Kate and Cecily both acted very well with how awkward Robert Mueller was acting, how overwhelmed Cecily's character was. And there were a fun few lines in here of, you know, like, so that's it. He's just gonna he's just gonna be president, uh, and sort of treating this whole idea like a breakup, almost like it was on the show. What I will say, minor nitpicks, is that you know the last time we saw Kate as Robert Mueller on Weekend Update, I don't know if we're going with like consistency in character because when she was on as Robert Mueller, which I was vocal about how I didn't necessarily love, she was all about like, yeah, I've got something. Oh, just you wait. This is not gonna be lost. And then now we have this take on Robert Mueller, where it's more so. Hat in hand, I've got nothing. It doesn't. It sort of juts up against each other in that perspective. But I'm just if I'm just taking this as sort of an isolated incident, I really liked what they did with this overall. Yeah, I will totally back up what you said that I think those two are fantastic actors. Sometimes that's one of the, my my gripes with this cast. I think the acting gets in the way of the comedy, and it's not just specifically this year. It's been going on for a couple of years. Sometimes the acting becomes more prevalent. But I again, I'd be a total hypocrite if I said, oh, I'm tired of the same old Trump openings. And then they do this and I didn't like this. But like, well, this was different than the Trump opening. So like like you said, yeah, it was something it was a completely different take. So more power to him. All right. Let's move on to the Sterling K. Brown monologue. And for the second week in a row, Mario, I feel like we have a different take on a monologue, especially for a first time host. No singing, even though we'll get that in space near the end of the show. (laughs) No questions from the audience. And Sterling K. Brown sort of lampshading 
the uh, somewhat overwrought dramatic acting that he does on This Is Us. Now, again, as someone who didn't really know Sterling K. Brown's uh, selective style before this, how do you think he did on the monologue? I thought he did really good on the monologue. And it, it wasn't one of those things where I think you need to know his background or This Is Us to get that. Just a guy who's excited to be on the show and overwhelmed. And again, you knew that going into it, that this was going to be kind of his persona because that's how he's been presenting himself on social media all week. But yeah. I like this uh, monologue, and like you said, it was two in a row that were different. So again, we we give uh, credit to the true pioneer Charles Barkley for being the Jackie Robinson of this movement. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, or, or he'll be like he'll be the one that everyone forgets about. Like everyone thinks that Sterling K. Brown started this, but it was really Charles Barkley back in March, early March, twenty eighteen. <laughs> I really yeah. like this too. I thought it was different. I thought Sterling K. Brown just showcasing off the top how game he is with going into this sort of like over-the-top dramatic nature with, like, the look off to the side, bite on your lip, and, like, look down. Uh, even the other random throwaway lines, like him saying uh, that is the K stands for Kathleen, and then him saying, get it together, Sterling Kathleen, later on, I thought that was fun. Talking about the after show of This Is Us called This Was Them, and then the spinoff, This Us, where a black family <laughs> adopts a white child. I think the highlight for me might have been his randomly out of place but so much fun keenan impression uh, that was just that was killer yeah i wrote that in my notes too that you know there was some keenan bashing in this episode what happened all of a sudden you had this and we're gonna have one in the celebrity family feud later <laughs> like what, what did keenan do to tick everybody off this week especially after he became like the mvp of the last episode like, all right time to <laughs> time to now we got the carrot now let's break yeah. out the stick for keenan <laughs> i have never heard a keenan impression before so more power to snl for bringing out a new uh a new uh, name in the litany of impressions, the Keenan Thompson impression. Did you like the uh, S- the Leslie Jones appearance at the end? To sort of, we get a little bit of like our requisite monologue with the oh, here comes a cast member to come out and help them. Yeah, I don't mind that. Again, I always like Leslie Jones. She always adds a bit of humor to the episode. I think they used her perfectly here. It's, I never ever have a complaint with a Leslie Jones cameo in a in a sketch. I mean, even though. She generally cannot act very well. She blows lines left and right. When she's just out there being herself, I really defy you to find one time when she doesn't make the sketch funnier. I'm just excited to see, if Leslie keeps coming down in monologues, how high her hair is going to get. Because, (laughs) I mean, it'll look like a ski slope. A very Marty Piombo to make a Survivor (laughs) reference. So I was loving it. Yes, this hairstyle is us. (laughs) Well, let's move on to our first post-monologue sketch here. Celebrity Family Feud. Now, Mario, I know as an SNL historian, you have seen quite a number of Celebrity Jeopardies. How have you felt about Celebrity Family Feud in general as sort of like a a fill-in for what Celebrity Jeopardy used to be? Okay, we'll do a little history lesson here that's kind of interesting is that uh, if you go back and you watch the start of Celebrity Jeopardy, it was generally the impressions were kind of just a minor part of the sketch. It was more the game itself falling apart. And it was funny, as the Jeopardies went along, the impressions became bigger and more cartoony, where just the introductions of their of their the characters and the impression became the focus of the sketch. They would never even get to the game sometimes. It's one of these things, as, as the series went along, they just realized all the character has to do is introduce themselves, and the audience gets a big pop, and they make a joke, and that's really all we have to do, and we don't even need to get to the game show. And I noticed sometimes in the Family Feud ones, they do that where they barely even get to the game they just do the impressions and that's the sketch this one they actually went into a round of questions which i was kind of shocked about because they don't always go that far into the sketch yeah so it's just just something note i've noticed over the years with these uh impression sketches i'm i'm not always the biggest thrill of these because i think they're kind of lazy like again if you watch the early celebrity jeopardy sketches which i always like pointing out were written by norm mcdonald those were the creation of the the great one himself norm that those were full-on sketches, and these ones aren't. These, I always kind of think these are uh, writing the coattails of those Celebrity Jeopardies. It's kind of like the, the uh, red-headed stepchild version. But most of the impressions are pretty good. Like, again, I don't think these are always fully fleshed-out sketches. But as one of these uh, Celebrity Family Feud ones go, I think this one was pretty good. Yeah, and Celebrity Family Feud, I, I appreciate that they've at least tried newer versions of it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did uh, the Super Bowl one a couple of years ago. I mean, the last one that they did was back in the Chance the Rapper episode, which I loved, which was, uh, you know, it was, Char- it was uh, Steve Harvey's family and then his ex-girlfriend's family and Chance the Rapper was made up to look like Steve Harvey. Like, I just thought that was a fantastic way to do a recurring sketch. So yeah, I, and initially I was a little tepid to come back to the well that we've always been to of, okay, here are eight impressions. But 
Overall, I agree. You know, maybe absence makes the heart grow fonder, but I enjoyed seeing this back here. We can definitely talk about, I mean, Steve Harvey is always the anchor of this sketch, and I thought that Keenan, as always, had some great lines in here. But of the eight impressions, uh, who, who impressed you, who not so much? Okay, first off, I have to say, and I will be saying this in every episode I'm ever on, every week, every week, uh, I'm so excited that Heidi gets to be on camera again and do something. So any sketch where I see Heidi in the lineup at the start, I'm like, this is going to be fun. So once again, I got to point out Heidi's Alice and Janney, who is not someone you see impersonated very often. And it's funny, my wife is a big Alice and Janney fan. She sees her, she watches the Ellen show every day. So she knows Alice and Janney. Allison's always on there. And I'm like, is that a good Alice and Janney impression? And my wife's like, yeah, it kind of was. It was actually pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, that I I loved that one. It might be it's one of those things where sometimes and we experience this a bit with Melissa Via Senor as well. Sometimes the best impressions or the funniest impressions are not the most accurate impressions. And I feel like mm-hmm. while I loved what Heidi was doing here, I don't know if it was exactly funny. Like I don't know if they actually you just talked about it. There's really nothing humorous you could really make of the Alice and Janney character unless you do it really over the top. So while I thought it was a pitch-perfect impression and that sufficiently entertained me, I was a little disappointed that nothing really funny came out of that character. Yeah, although you have to think of it from a comedy writing point of view. What exactly is going to be funny about Alice and Janney? Like, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that was one impression that impressed me. Although, like you said, it, it, doesn't really, it wasn't really funny. It was just kind of accurate. And it's kind of like... If you kind of go back to uh, uh, Daryl Hammond in his early years on the show, he wasn't necessarily funny as in, as in his impressions. He became funnier later later in his tenure. They were very accurate at the start. That was the thing with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's okay. True. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see who else here. Like uh, Francis McDormand, uh, Kate, I thought was good. Again, Kate's good in anything. Um, I've heard some people say that her Francis McDormand in the past was probably funnier and more over the top. This one, it was almost like she was kind of playing herself a little more, but that's kind of, I think a little quibble because Kate is just always so good in everything. I don't know. What did you think about that? Yeah, I thought she was good. We've seen her before. I believe it, there was a, a, an E fashion watch sketch that had her on there and she was a little less, uh, crass on this one. I remember when this was after the Golden Globes, so her like every third word was bleeped from her. I'm surprised they didn't make a, a reference of uh, Francis McDormand's Oscar being stolen, but I think like the burlap dre- dress and everything like that was fun. Yeah, I uh, I don't know Guillermo del Toro very it's well. Or Gucci Guillermo... del Taco, Mario. Del Taco, yeah. Sorry for our California listeners here, the del Taco. But uh, yeah, I wasn't. I don't know him very well. I'm assuming that was a pretty good impression, but he did get some good lines in there. So I don't really care if it was a good impression or not, because he had a lot of the the punchlines in the episode. Yeah. And then uh, the Jordan Peele one I thought was pretty funny. That one that one made me laugh, especially. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you talk about it. The uh, the random dig at Keenan for no reason. Oh, it's so funny. See, so, yeah, I would say Chris does a great Jordan Peele impression, especially like the sort of nasally aspects of his voice. But he says, uh, sketch comedy is great, but you have to move on, too. And I didn't notice this the first time, but Keenan breaks character and says, <laughs> he, like, he looks down contemplatively, and he's like, for how many years? And it's just, <laughs> I love these little, I mean, SNL's been on the year for 43, on the air for 43 years. They can do these types of things where they go meta occasionally. I thought that was just a fantastic way to do it. Yeah, and again, for people who don't realize we're joking, clearly they're not taking digs at Keenan. There, it's a good-natured thing. But it was, yeah, it was really funny to acknowledge if you just know Keenan's history, not only on this show, but what he really has done for his entire life is all he has ever been as a sketch comedian. So, yeah, I, that was just a a fun moment that really actually made me laugh out loud. And I don't laugh out loud all that often in these sketches, but that was just Keenan milking it, milking that response, the hurt, sad re- reaction. It was very well done, and and again, that was. Mostly, uh, obviously, the, the, the Jordan Peele impression. But, you know, Keenan sells the comedy there by milking it longer than it should go on. And that was that was like 90 percent Keenan. Why that was funny. Uh, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. I will say <laughs> on the Oscar loser side, uh, maybe not as much great stuff going on as the other side. You know, I think Pete as Timothy Chalamet. I haven't seen too much Timothy Chalamet stuff, uh, but he's giggly and shy and he's young so i think it was appropriate uh, the, uh, the thing that really made me laugh out loud besides that keenan moment was just the sight of alex moffat as willem dafoe <laughs> i just thought it was uh it was such such a great belly laugh from that have you always been an alex moffat fan i'm noticing as we go along here as he's his tenure on the show i'm becoming more and more of a fan of his i uh, what was the stance on you when you were on uh, the show before with uh with rich 
Yeah, I think my stance during 42 was like, okay, I'm liking him because that was his first season. But I feel like 43 has really sort of been his growth. And I think especially with the advent of the Eric and Donald Jr. stuff, which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. later on in this episode, I think people were starting to turn more eyes to Alex and Alex was being brought on to do more stuff. And yeah, I think he is solidly, I mean, I don't want to call him underrated because I'm not sure what the pulse in general on him is, but I really enjoy Alex Moffat. I feel like he really just does great stuff in pretty much every sketch that he's in. Yeah, the one thing I, my kind of my criticism over the years of the last couple of years of SNL is once they lost uh, Taron Killam, they didn't really have the straight man who was like the, the the rock of everything. And it was weird because Beck Bennett was expected to go into that role and he just never did. That's kind of the thing with Beck. You expected him to become this Phil Hartman type utility guy and he never really did. And like all of a sudden, like Alex has kind of grown into that role. And that's not something I was expecting. And I know this has nothing to do with his William Defoe impression. I just wanted to talk about him for a second. But yeah, the just a visual of Willem Defoe and the voice was so perfect. And this was probably the best impression in the sketch, I would guess. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, I don't know too, too much about Common. Uh, so I don't know how accurate Sterling K. Brown's <laughs> impression of Common was. Though I do like the characterization of what they did with Common. And again, this is just a great representation of what what Sterling was going to bring to the show in terms of goofiness, where he just goes up onto these, like, long-winded tangents. I think Steve Harvey says, uh, you ain't a rapper, you're a TED Talk set to music. And so I, I like them sort of doubling down on that and letting him sort of spread his wings and go with that. Yeah, and then, of course, you also have the sign language impression, which is it's funny that you have the this world-class impressionist on the show, Melissa Villasenor, and we give her a sign language impression, which is like, <laughs> let's find one way to negate her skills a little bit. And I think it was a little tough as well, because I wonder if that had went over well if The Shape of Water was more of a mainstream thing. Like, I know we got Guillermo del Toro on there. We had a little bit of talk about The Shape of Water. Steve Harvey says that it sounds like a Wayans Brothers film. Uh, But I wonder (laughs) if it's one of those things where, like, okay, people don't know Sally Hawkins that, that much in her performance in The Shape of Water to really understand the impression. Yeah, it's, again, I haven't seen the movie. I've heard just limited things about it. I didn't really get the impression, but... What she was doing was funny enough on its own, just a little sign language. I thought it was a cute little character, but it's, yeah, the audience didn't really react to it as well as you kind of think the writers would have hoped. All right, well, let's go to our first pre-tape of the night here. This is U.S. And I got to say, Mario, I'm (laughs) like, okay, we're in it, like 45 seconds. This is fun. I can't wait to see what happens next. And then it ends. It stops. Yeah, this is one of those like rare moments in SNL where you're like, no, I want it to go longer. Like, give me more (laughs) of this, please. This was U.S. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, again, as someone who's not necessarily tapped into the politics of it all, how did you feel about the sort of mishmash that they're doing here? I like this one more than The Bachelor one, for obvious reasons. This was more mainstream as opposed to having to know The Bachelor. Um, Again, this isn't isn't the type of stuff that I watch SNL for, but I will say in all fairness that people who like this kind of stuff on SNL probably really love this sketch, this little taped piece. So I will back away from this one because I don't really have anything to say about it other than it was well done. But I think, yeah, there's a market for SNL that really watches it for the political commentary. And this was a very strong one, I think. Yeah, I thought it was a fun way to sort of, you know, Sterling K. Brown's able to do not only you know, reference the melodrama that can come with This Is Us, but also do this Dr. Ben Carson impression, which not since Jay Farrow have we seen Dr. Ben Carson on the show. But I liked, you know, AD in her Sarah Huckabee Sanders role. We have Pete sort of filling the shoes of Jimmy Fallon as Jared Kushner. Uh, so yeah, I thought they were going to keep rolling with it. Uh, you know, they, they kept bringing back these, these essentially uh, the news bite clips of like, this is not funny, uh, or it's like it's it's like uh, it's like the, this is us, but without all the lighthearted parts. Uh, so, and I like to. It's been a while. I feel like since we've seen Kellyanne uh, by Ke- maybe since the Kelly Wise sketch in the Kumail Nanjiani episode, the the it wow. parody. But uh, yeah, it was it was so it was fun to see her back. Yeah. No. Again, this this wasn't one of those episodes. I thought there was a lot of stuff that would have gone viral, and that's one of the things when I watch SNL, I always pick out okay, which sketch is the one that everyone's going to be talking about tomorrow. This was probably the closest one they had in this episode, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I would say this or The Bachelor. I mean, when I went onto Facebook today, I know one of the trending news stories was The Bachelor sketch specifically. So I think it makes sense, considering also the political connotations that have come with SNL in the past couple seasons, that those two would be the ones to really break big. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so this was probably a very big success. Well, let's move on to our next sketch. And man... If you need an example of how <laughs> Sterling Kane Brown can save a sketch, 
look no further than this family dinner sketch where the entire concept is that this one guy believes that Shrek is the best animated film ever created and just will not let it go. <laughs> okay, now we're getting back into the type of type of stuff that I watch SNL for. This was such a random concept for a sketch. And it, again, you wouldn't do this sketch with Charles Barkley. You wouldn't do this sketch with certain hosts. With Sterling K. Brown, to his credit, again, I think I think you already said it. He basically sells this sketch right from the start, and it's like almost 100% him. And the other characters are just reacting to him, which is very rare for a host sketch, where the yeah. host has all the punchlines and, and he's doing all the hard work. So really a tip of the cap to Sterling K. Brown for a sketch that really isn't that amazing on paper, but it's sold by the over-the-top performances and just the anger, the pure rage that someone would not give Shrek its due. I just, the lines are so insane between you're wrong and you're a stupid person. Uh, <laughs> we're both getting married so you can eat my butt. Uh, and when when Beck does the uh, Shrek impression, he goes, get, get his name out of your mouth, you son of a bitch. And then he throws water in his face. <laughs> I will also say, Beck looking very like Clark Gable, very debonair as as the dad, but I mean, yeah, Sterling K. Brown, and to your point, it's very very rare that they do this with a first time host, let alone yeah. let alone any host, because the first time host usually fills in terms of the straight man crazy man relationship. They're almost always the straight man of like, okay, we don't know how this person is going to do, so let me have them react like a normal person to these things. But this was so much fun, and again, it's such a stupid concept, but. Sterling K. Brown really elevated the material and made it something that was just so absurd. I loved it. Yeah, and this reminds me of a sketch that might have been in like the late 90s years, the Will Ferrell, the uh, Jim Brewer years, or even more so like almost a Will Forte sketch. Like, can you mm. picture Will Forte staring stare, and like with that big old vein in his forehead getting furious and purple faced over Shrek? And that's kind of what I had the vibe for. And, and again, it's Again, this this sketch spoke to nothing. It made no greater point about politics, about the world, about any life in general, other than I happen to agree with him that Shrek is the all-time greatest animated movie. <laughs> and if you would dare dispute that, then you uh, keep his name out of your mouth, you dumb son of a bitch, Mike. Don't throw water on your microphone, though. That'll uh, <laughs> then we be then we be out of podcast co-host. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> well, let's move on here. Let's go back to the pre-tapes. Uh, let's talk about it came from the woods. Uh, and it's a, it's a group of people. Sterling plays apparently an expert on primates, which comes in handy or maybe not so handy when a Sasquatch is perennially beating Mikey Day. How did you feel about this one? This is one of those that I should have liked more. But as I was watching it, it just kind of fizzled out. Like, it didn't really go anywhere. I don't know. I, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of suspecting from your tone of voice you felt the same way. Like, it was kind of an interesting premise. And it's a Mikey Day sketch. And those are usually wild cards. Something fun might happen here. But it just kind of was kind of repetitive, and then it just ended, and they threw up a clumsy little graphic on the screen that said Sasquatch, and I'm like, I think that could have been a little better. Yeah, I mean, this might have been one of my least favorite pieces of the night, which I guess it, it might have gone over better in maybe dress rehearsal, because it got, you know, it's pre-update, and there's some post-update that I think worked a little bit better. But yeah, it, it was something that I, I wish... The escalation on it was a little bit off. You know, like, first you have getting punched in the face, and then you have, like, you're grabbing his part, as Mikey Day's character puts it, and then you pee on his hat. Uh, the the one part that I really did enjoy was the physical work when he was holding the bat, and then he just punched the bat, and the bat hit him in the face. I thought that was a fantastic piece of physical comedy, but outside of that, there really wasn't that much stuff going on physically that really kept my interest. Yeah, and it, again, it just never went anywhere. It was the same premise the entire way. And like I said, I did like the bat part. That was good. But I did want to uh, mention something that you had mentioned that maybe this played better in dress. This is something that always amuses me when something makes like is does better in dress but not in lie on, on the air. Like this was a pre-taped bit, so it's not like the performance has changed. So why would it play better at dress than in live? Was was just a different, like a dumber audience? What was going on? I don't know. There were a lot like, of Sasquatch fans in the audience. So they just yeah. were like, oh, this is going to be perfect. Yeah, all my all my homies from Washington State were in the audience for the, uh, the dress <laughs> rehearsal. And they loved it. We love our Sasquatch humor. But yeah, this is one. I don't really know if it needed to be in the episode. I would have loved to see perhaps something from one of the new cast members, perhaps a Luke Knoll or a Melissa or a Heidi sketch here instead. But again, I know there's... This probably played well for uh, for some parts of the audience, but it, it it didn't really do anything for me. All right, well, let's move into our musical guest this week, James Bay. And as per usual, 
Will from America is going to talk to us now about his thoughts on James Bay performance this week. So, Will, take it away. Hey, guys. Will from America signing on. Today, I want to talk about a very strangely specific trend in music recently, and I'm not talking about rock and rap. After the success of Ed Sheeran in the early 2010s, we started to get a string of one-off hits from similar artists, all of them being folksy white guys from the UK with a guitar. First, we had Passenger with his song, Let Her Go, then James Bay with his song called Let It Go, and finally, this past year, we got James Arthur with Say You Won't Let Go. All of these guys had one big, boring hit song in the U.S. about letting something go and then immediately vanished from relevancy. That is, until now. James Bay was by far my favorite of the Ed Sheeran clones, and based on Ed Sheeran's recent material, I'd even prefer James Bay. He had a soulfulness about him that the other wigwags seemed to lack, and with the new songs he played tonight, he seems to be going in a new sort of retro direction. It's a bit derivative, but I was a huge fan of his first song, Pink Lemonade. It's built around a chord progression that's common in jazz, but is rarely found in modern pop music. And with how it's used here, I wish we got more songs that utilized it. I was less a fan of his second song, Wild Love, as it didn't seem to know what it wanted to be. It felt like a discount version of a Sam Smith song and was a rather boring performance until the last minute when James finally took his vocals up an octave and the energy of the backing band picked up as well. Overall, though, I was pleasantly surprised with James Bay, especially considering the caliber of the acts I generally associate him with, and it was obviously a gigantic step up from Migos last week. And back to you guys. Okay, thank you, Will from America. Yeah, I I guess maybe the all the Ed Sheeran clothes had just sort of run together in my head, but... For what it's worth, I really liked James Bay here too. It's it's interesting. For a second, I was looking at him. I'm like, he sound he reminds me like of this type of music. Reminds me of that song "Hold Back the River," which was a song that I really liked from last year. And it turns out that looking it up, he was the guy that wrote "Hold Back the River." So <laughs> maybe there was sort of inherent prejudice built in there. But between the outfits, the light up uh, floor beneath him, and the the music, I I enjoyed it as well. Did you have any thoughts on it, Mario? I thought he wore lovely sparkly vests. Yeah. I, listen, they, I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to pull it off. So good on James Bay. He was able to to get it done there. <laughs> yeah, I was a little disappointed he never sang "You're Beautiful" though. <laughs> no, uh, oh, that's, that's James more, Blunt. Yeah, a little oh. more of a blunt appeal there. Uh, <laughs> okay. Though James Blunt said he was coming out with music this year, so we'll we'll see. Uh, or maybe last year, we'll see. Maybe we can get James Blunt back on it because I think he was on back when he was big in like 2006. <laughs> I hope he wears the sparkly vests. <laughs> all it's a James rule. All James carry all James <laughs> musical guests must wear. They keep it backstage in 8H. <laughs> Let's move on to update here. Uh, any over th- overall thoughts on the Che and Joe side of update this week? Um, it's uh, it's weird because I usually have something that I w- I always write down a quote, one or two great quotes because these guys are such good joke writers. And just again, I'm a comedy writer myself, so I always write down one or two great lines that they had. I don't really have anything that stood out this week as being anything great. Like, I like the Amelia Earhart one just because I like yeah. the audience reaction to him. I like them booing him as if, it, what, it's too soon for an Amelia Earhart joke? Um, yeah, no, to me, the really the standout of this was the two commentators this week. I don't really have anything to say about Shea and Jost other than they're just kind of solid as usual. Yeah, a couple of uh, lines that I pulled out here. I do like Colin's line that the news has become like porn. We're desensitized to it. I thought that was a very... <laughs> interesting way to look at things uh i think my favorite though might have been michael che talking about how you know mcdonald's for international women's day turned the m upside down and in and out burger changed its name to adequate foreplay burger uh <laughs> which i think is a californian that probably played into your wheelhouse uh, yeah no i appreciated that one i i forgot i also did i did write down one joke about Shay's joke about not knowing how the dow works which is very similar to me like when he says it's when he whenever he hears news about the dow her he reacts uh the same way as when his boys tell him that they're having a kid. He's like, word, what's that like? <laughs> I, I like that a, one. Yeah. I liked Michael talking about how his, his dad was a public school teacher and how public school teachers are so poorly paid that they don't drive cars that were like made by real companies. They said that his dad drove a 97 Frigidaire, which I thought was just between that and the visual. I thought that one really worked. But let's move into the correspondence. Uh, so we talked about it before. Eric and Donald Trump Jr. coming back for it's probably a good handful of times at this point between seasons 42 and 43. What do you think about them as characters, as recurring characters specifically? 
what's interesting is that I've never they've never really stood out to me as anything like special. Like I think they're they're fun characters, but I never really in the past have thought they were the best part of the show. But like they were really funny last night. And my wife and I were sitting there, we're taking notes, and we're just laughing at Eric responding to the pop-up book, which is one of the more funny visuals I've seen in SNL in recent memory. So I, in general, I don't really think they're anything special. But last night, I, I thought they stole the show. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, at some point, I think, I think okay, the act's got to get old. But for some reason, the act has never gotten old for me. And maybe it's just because Alex Moffat's performance as Eric Trump. Because it's one thing to play a dumb character— but it's another one to sort of play it with like a wide eye naivete and very childlike, <laughs> quite literally, which he does so, so well here. But there's also these really fun jokes in here. I mean, they're, I think the last time they were on, we had this thing that they started bringing in of, you know, all the gestures that Don Jr. makes. Eric's going to try to mimic him to the point of where he's actually like looking over, trying to do the exact same thing. Uh, and I love this one moment where, you know, uh, Don Jr. looks at Eric to laugh and Eric looks to the right to laugh as, as, as to somebody who wasn't there. But I think my favorite might be, you know, my our father has a nickname for you members of the liberal elitist media. Goddamn Jews. Nobody. No. No. I think that that was just a, such a fantastic joke. It's those little moments like that, that that really keep me along with these characters. Yeah. Stop bringing, bringing Eric on TV with you. That was the other one, too. Yeah, I was... Again, yeah, it's I, I get tired of political humor on SNL, but this really isn't a political piece. This is just a character piece. And again, you got you got Eric off to the side doing really the old Chevy Chase routine of mimicking the person who's speaking on next to him. Yeah, that's I just I love that stuff. So yeah, this was such a little character piece, and I just I could have watched this for another ten fifteen minutes. It was really funny, and this is the one thing that I I took from this episode is that Alex Moffat is getting really really good on SNL and. I would like to see more of these characters. That was legitimately laugh-out-loud funny. Well, let's move on to our other correspondent here. Safe to say, surprise of the night, Mario. It's the return of Vanessa Bayer after leaving at the end of last season to bring back her meteorologist character, nervous meteorologist character, Don Lazarus. Mario, I know you're a huge Vanessa Bayer fan. How excited were you to see her back here? Oh, I was so excited. This was unexpected. Normally, what's funny is that on the West Coast, you learn to read what's going to happen on SNL before you watch it because you read all these reviews. And now that they started doing it at 8.30 this year, and I think last year, that I can actually watch SNL live. So this was a legitimate shock that she showed up on SNL. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Vanessa Bayer, to me, one of the all-time greatest SNL cast members. She was so solid in everything. And I just love, I love her happiness. She's so happy to be performing these characters. You can always tell. And she's also like ice. She will never, ever break or crack. Like she's so tough to break. So it was just, I thought it was infectious seeing her there again. I thought the audience loved her. You could just tell she's got, I mean, it's, it's fun to see Vanessa's teeth make an appearance again when she's just yeah. grinning. She's so excited to be doing this character. But at the same time, I will say this was never my favorite Vanessa character. Like they only introduced it right at the end of her reign, yeah, and then it became did, the thing she, did, she was she did known twice, for. Twice, I think, before leaving. Yeah, and it was like the thing she did last on SNL, and now it's the thing she does on her return to SNL. And I'm, I'm hoping this isn't the one character she's remembered for because she did so many great things on SNL, and it's just one of these things. I just hope like this doesn't become her one thing. Oh, that's the one character she plays. And but again, I would never say anything bad about her as a performer or a or a uh, just SNL cast member, just because I, I love her so much. So I was excited to see her last night, but with a slight tinge of disappointment that they're going to they're gonna make this her thing, which I don't mm -hmm. want to happen. Yeah, let's hope not. I mean, at least bring back, like, Jacob the Bar Mitzvah Boy or the, the News Kid. I think that's... Bring her back <laughs> in multiple instances. But, yeah, I mean, I enjoy Don Lazarus as well. I agree that it's not my favorite Vanessa character because it can get a little wrote i'm glad they sort of cut this one short but she still has some great lines here like not one but two but two big biggies uh and then to end to end the uh the piece with you know michael saying is there gonna be another storm on the way she just goes she don't know i think again it's that earnestness that sells vanessa babbling nonsense yeah earnestness that's the word her all of her characters are so earnest and they just are happy to please you and that's the thing with her that I can't even think of another performer who I can compare her to in that regard. It's just she's always had a totally unique energy and charisma about her that I just really miss on the show. And I thought it was a, a nice little shot in the arm that, again, I was so happy that I didn't know was coming. It was a legitimate surprise that she showed up. Well, let's move to our post-update bout of sketches. And we start here with a deleted scene from Black Panther 
where uh, Chris Red playing Black Panther goes to visit his ancestors and particularly meets up with Keenan as Uncle Imbutu. Uh, so, Mario, are you familiar? Have you seen Black Panther? Are you familiar with what was going on here? I have not seen Black Panther, but I could figure it out. Obviously, there's a thing about lineage and how you're passed down from your ancestors. I, I figured out enough that the, the sketch could have worked for me. So I, I hear could have. Were you not? <laughs> did you not enjoy this sketch that much? Nah, this one just kind of seemed kind of juvenile. Like, and what's funny is like I, I normally enjoy Keenan showcases where they just give Keenan a character and let him go. But it kind of reminded me of that uh, sports talk one last week with Barkley and A-Rod where Mm -hmm. Keenan just took a character and took over the sketch. It all became him just monologuing, basically. And that's basically what this sketch was, which normally I don't mind, but I feel like we kind of just saw this last week. So it's one of these things I kind of wish they would have given a sketch like this to someone else or put one in its spot here to to, to, uh, highlight a new cast member. And it didn't really do anything for me. I'm guessing it probably didn't do much for you, but... Again, it's if you're a Keenan fan, you may love this one. This one, for some reason, just didn't work with me. Yeah, I, I was expecting more from this. Maybe it's because I, I was a little saddened that Sterling and Leslie, to a lesser extent, were sort of like pushed to the back or sort of just given like supporting lines. And that it sort of, as you said, was sort of a Keenan showcase. So that being said, he still had some funny moments. Like they talked about how he, he died because he essentially told his wife that she should wear a wig because he doesn't want to feel like he's making love to Michael Jordan. And I think the part that... <laughs> Uh, was probably the funniest and the part that made even Sterling and Leslie break was him touting his Lion Burger and singing the Lion King or a butchered version of Circle of Life as he held it aloft. Yeah, he ate the burger, then he said, oh, it's still frozen. He spat it out, and you can see Leslie visibly crack. Did Sterling crack? I forgot to, I forgot to write I, I that think down. He, I think he did for a second. Uh, Leslie was more palpable on her face, but I think he had the rare moment where he did break. <laughs> okay, and again... You hand it to Keenan. He's funny. He makes the other cast members laugh. And you throw him out there, you're going to get five minutes of comedy, whether you like it or not. So I appreciate that this was there. They had to do a Black Panther sketch. Again, I don't know Black Panther, so I don't know what a better uh, sketch would have been. But if you had to do something, I guess you could do worse than throwing Keenan out there. Although, again, I really wish you could highlight a new cast member here instead or something like that. Yeah, though Chris Red played Takala, and I thought that was he did a pretty good job there. Uh, let's move into our doctor's room here. Another chance for Serling and Beck Bennett to uh, to face off. How'd you think they did here? This was one I kind of enjoyed while it was airing. Like, I enjoyed the spirit of it. And then it just kind of stops. And they, they did the same thing as they did with the Sasquatch. They just throw a little clumsy graphic on the screen as if that's an ending to a sketch. And, like, afterwards, I'm like, well, that was kind of insubstantial. But as I was watching it, I kind of liked it. Like, at least it had a little different energy to it. Yeah, I mean, this one took a little while to get going for me, just because I think, you know, I I thought we were expecting the initial joke of, okay, he's going to ask how many, you know, how much sex he's had, and he's going to be like, oh man, like, I want to learn from you, but I think this is another one where Sterling K. Brown's reaction is definitely buoyed the premise, and I liked it the more we got into it, and the more he was doing away with the doctor stuff, like Peck was saying, <laughs> you know, can we just talk about why how it, why it burns when I pee? He's like, well, because... Because pee's hot, dude. All right, let's talk about this. <laughs> so then when it made this final reveal that he was uh, Cupid Hodge's Doctor of Love, I thought that was very understated, but I think the rest of the sketch sort of filled it in. I think that there were bits and pieces of funny stuff here, like when Beck finally breaks and talks about how, you know, uh, he hasn't really gotten with this girl because she's married to her job and he's focused on his tech decks right now. Uh, the Ooh. specificity of that, and I think the interplay between them worked, but the writing was not necessarily there the entire time. Yeah, this was very much a performer's sketch, and it's one I think if I watched a lot over and over, I'd probably really appreciate. I think I would appreciate the energy and have the, the fast banter and how they played off each other. But like you said, it would say it's like a performer's sketch and not a writer's sketch. It almost felt like it was improvised. Mm. Like, this is the type of thing you'd see in the Groundlings, like, just talk about a doctor's visit gone wrong. Just go. And, like, I, it almost had that kind of energy to it. So. Again, it was different than the rest of the show. I don't know if it necessarily was my favorite. And again, I'd probably like it more the more I watched it. But at the time, I remember thinking, ah, that was kind of insubstantial. So it, it, it didn't really jump out to me, but I don't think it hurt the show. It was just kind of one of those sketches you're going to forget next week. Well, let's move on to this next one here as we go to a movie set as uh, Sterling is trying to act with the scene partner of Gail, the script supervisor. And I'll admit, I wasn't entirely in on this concept initially, 
But by the end of it, I was loving this. And maybe it was the character that Cecily created between her just very monotone delivery, but in that chipper Southern accent, the way she bleeps out swears, and the fact that Sterling K. Brown needs to act like she's, he's being shot while you have someone going bang, bang, bang. Uh, but for some reason, this one just got me giggling. Okay, to be fair here, let's start this. There's no quicker way to break Mario's heart than to start a sketch with Heidi Gardner out there. Oh, it's going to be a Heidi sketch. And then, oh, wait, it says Cecily does wacky voices sketch. Oh, no, they baited and switched me. <laughs> yeah, bait and switch. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. But I will say, I did kind of laugh at this one as it went along. I did like, again, most of my friends growing up are Mormons. So I am very well familiar with the concept of the fake swear word, the the swear that replaces the real one. And she was doing that. And with her little Southern accent, I did appreciate that bang, bang, bang. So it eventually kind of won me over. I, again, I, it's, although I mean, my notes here, I just wrote, what, was Kristen Wiig unavailable for a cameo this week? Because that's the kind <laughs> of sketch that she would have done. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's I it's I I again I, I I'm a broken record saying I get tired of Cecily doing wacky voices, but this one was kind of funny and like you said, it kind of won me over by the end where I was I was laughing at some of the little fake swear words and she was doing it so rapid fire yeah. that it was very impressive. Like a, and it, especially when she had the bag over her head, <laughs> she couldn't read the cue card like that. She actually literally had to memorize those, and they don't really memorize lines all that much on SNL these days. So that was an impressive bit of uh, of memorization. She memorized this fast talking, fake swearing, bang bang language with a bag over her head, so more power to her. And I love that visual, too, where she's like, okay, I'm going to stay out of the way, and then it cuts to him, and you hear some rustling around, but you have no idea what's happening, and then it just cuts back to her standing there with a bag over her head. It was <laughs> so ridiculous. And I love Sterling K. Brown. Like, he was the straight man here, but he provided some great material in that, like, he had to try to choke her while she's going, ugh, ugh, please don't choke me. <laughs> like, yeah. the fact that he was so committed to it. And I also... I, you could say that maybe the touch at the end of having her sing Hello because it's the song that's playing in the scene might have been a little over the top, but I really enjoyed it just for how insane it was and how everyone else seemed to be in on it, specifically Melissa's character who was adamant that her boyfriend would love this type of movie. Yeah. I was going to say, it's nice that Melissa got to do something on the show, but we're going to have her showcase coming up in a minute. But I will say, before we go, Cecily, if there's any chance you ever listen to this, you won me over on this one, so congratulations. I appreciated this one. Perfect. Uh, won, him, won him over instead of effed him over in the A. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's 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 move on here. Kyle Mooney pre-tape. I feel like it's been a few episodes since we've seen one of these, specifically this one. Uh, this is a character named Chris Fitzpatrick, who we saw, we've seen only a couple times before. I remember he uh, he did like the Chris for class president one. I think he did one with Brie Larson about a Kickstarter. But here, Chris is on the street talking about which is better, rap or rock and roll. Now, I would say this is quintessential Kyle Mooney. Mario, how did this one feel to you? <laughs> Again, there's no bigger Kyle Mooney fan than me. I loved this one. It's There's so many little things about these sketches. You kind of have to watch them several times to catch. Like the editing where he... He'll, he'll physically cut himself off in the middle of a sentence and go to a, like a, a little uh, uh, transition shot, which I just love how amateur it is on purpose. Just This is one I've watched like three times. Again, I don't, I don't know if it was necessarily the funniest thing in the show, but I, I just appreciate any any showcase of Kyle Mooney's odd, weird talents. And there's just, just so many weird little awkward things in this in this uh, video. And I know it wouldn't be for everyone. Like my mom or dad watching this episode would have been like, what the hell was that? Like this was not – this is not your typical mainstream SNL sketch. But I just appreciate that there's a vehicle out there where you can show stuff like this on network TV. Yeah, I would say this is not the strongest pre-tape Kyle thing that I've seen in a while and it got into some really awkward territory with you know what's the difference between rock and rap probably skin color and then like you, he just let it sit which again like can make for some fantastic cringe comedy but at the same time can make things a little awkward i'd love to, you're talking about the little details i love things as small as when he puts up like the powerpoint graphics and says like oh rock and roll was created by elvis but the elvis picture cuts off the, the text like it's yeah. these little touches that i completely agree really make for like the, the grody aspects of it yeah, rock and roll. Elvis invented it, but it only started getting real good in 2012. And then, <laughs> then he just talks. He only talks to white people who like rock. And then the one black lady who's making a good point. Well, I think that rap music speaks to us all. And then, and then he just cuts her off and goes to the next sentence with somebody yeah. else. <laughs> or, or, or I see. I like the, the the string where he just keeps going to people asking about rap, and they all said like, "Well, what's rap got?" And they sort of give these very, as you said, salient points about it. And he goes, "Just as I expected, nobody had a smart thing to say about rap." <laughs> And that's this is what I love about Kyle 
And again, he's just a performance artist. I can't, I always, I can't reiterate this is this enough. He's not really trying for a laugh in every sketch. He's just creating a character and he'll go with it. And that's the thing with this Chris Fitzpatrick is this kid is an ass who knows nothing about anything and clearly just hates rap music. And that's the thing. He has no problem creating an unlikable character. And that's what I like about it. He's like, well, this kid one would be unlikable. This kid would be ignorant. And I'm just going to go with it because that's what he'd be like. So that's the thing. He's not trying to sell you that this character is like fun or, or, or has anything relevant to say. He's just going to go with the fact that this kid knows nothing about this topic and is ignorant as hell. And that's how a Kyle Mooney character is born. I also like the little touch of him looking up run DMC or as he says, rum DNZ. And again, this is the small touch of like the, the Yahoo search coming up. Like, did you mean run DMC? But he's adamant, like I couldn't find it. So that guy was clearly wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say this, this is going to be really obscure, but I'm hoping one person out there gets this. When I was in college, I was in Northern California, San Jose, Santa Clara Bay area. And there was a show There was a Saturday night live was on every Saturday and then they had a regional comedy show right after that called Fishmasters. And it was the stupidest show ever. It was so amateurish. It was just two guys running around in like fishing vests, putting on a fake fishing show. And it was so awkward and poorly done. And it was one of these things. Is this funny? Is this am I laughing at this ironically? It was kind of like the room in a way. But Kyle's stuff reminds me so much of these Fishmaster episodes that were on only in the Bay Area, only in the 90s. And it's just really specific. And I'm hoping there's one person out there who maybe knows what I'm talking about. And that's it's just the same type of thing. Just people at home putting on this this uh, incompetent public access show and people are kind of laughing about it because it's so bad. And that's exactly what Kyle Mooney does with these videos. Wow. That is a deep-seated reference. I might, I might have to try to look this up because this sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it's again, it's so specific to one place in time. But everyone I went to college with remembers this. They're like, yeah, there was that show Fishmasters. What the hell was that? And like, my wife loved it for some reason. She'd always try to get me to watch it. And then I had to eventually appreciate it ironically because it just wasn't very good. But it was on every week and somehow it was on NBC. And I don't know how they did this. So Look up Fishmasters and compare it to Kyle's videos, and I would not be surprised if he maybe had seen these and maybe kind of based some of his persona on this uh, type of comedy. Was Fishmasters the nickelback of the uh, the regional comedy shows then? Please don't spoil the next sketch. <laughs> well, let's move on to the next sketch here. Let's talk about Mrs. Gomez's final words. And this, if we're talking about before the ridiculous concept of here's someone trying to build up Shrek as the greatest animated feature of all time, this is yet again another indication of how Sterling K. Brown's performance can really keep a sketch afloat, because I was not on board with this sketch starting off. I thought this was a little ridiculous, but I think it was just the energy in there, and the fact that everyone was just moshing along to the song by the end of it, which is ended up what ended up you know killing Mrs. Gomez to begin with. But <laughs> by the end of this, I was kind of hooked into it. My personal favorite sketch of the night, I will say this one, and that's that's impressive considering that the Shrek one was in there. I like those; those are my two that stood out. Those two, and then uh, the Trump brothers were the three things that stood out. But this one really won me over, and like you said, it started off slow, and that was the thing that we talked about with the Barkley episode with the homework help last week where Mm -hmm. you don't beat them over the head with a joke right away and then have nowhere to go. This one built up to the joke that it's going to be eventually going to be a full on sing along with Nickelback with the EMTs and the people trying to keep her alive. Yeah. It's again, it was a, uh, an odd sketch. It was a 10 to one sketch. This is exactly where this sketch should have been. It was a showcase for Melissa to do something other than just do impressions. She actually got to play a character. I mean, she is singing, she's doing an impression, but she's, physically playing a character as well. And I think that was good for her self-confidence just in general, that she got a good character on the air. And this, this one was just fun. I would just, uh, and I'm not even like a big, I don't know much about Nickelback. My wife exactly actually had to explain to me that that was a Nickelback song. But as it went along, I, this one totally won me over. And I just, uh, I really appreciate stuff like this on SNL. No other show does sketches like this. Especially a way to finish out the show as well. You know, it reminds me of, uh, was it Will Ferrell doing Goodnight Saigon and, and dancing out into the middle of the audience? Like, th- these types of things that aren't necessarily, they're more fun than funny, as Rob Cicernino would say. And 
there was also some like maybe it's because it was late. There was some awkward camera work going on during in the live feed. Like it would hang on Sterling and Cecily for like a couple of seconds when other people were saying lines. But I think the the energy more than made up for it. And like you said, it was a fun showcase for Melissa, specifically the uh, the air drumming. I think might have been my favorite thing that she did. <laughs> Absolutely, I wrote that in my notes, and I have to give a shout out to Luke Knoll getting his one line of the week. But it kills. Or he's like, your mom's final words kick the most ass. <laughs> yeah. Good, good Luke Knoll. I'm glad he got his uh, his time in there right at the very end. There is something I want to talk about here, Mario. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, apparently Jason Whitley, who I guess is a, a reporter, said that uh, someone found uh, a rundown from an SNL production member uh, for the dress rehearsal on the ground, I guess, before the show yesterday. And it looks like there was quite a number of jumblings and new sketches that were in there that got cut. Hmm. Isn't that some sort of a HIPAA violation? We can't be reporting SNL rundowns, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, (laughs) we can speculate about it. If there were an SNL rundown, uh, there would possibly be a sketch called Record Label and a sketch called Blackish Writer's Room that were both in there and apparently had gotten cut beforehand. And there was some shuffling around. The Black Panther was apparently this was going to be the sketch right after Family Feud in dress rehearsal. Uh, it was going to finish with Man on the Street instead of with uh, Dying Mrs. Gomez. So Sasquatch was initially supposed to be post-update, and it got bumped up to pre-update. Again, I'm not entirely sure why, but a nice little peek behind the curtain, albeit accidentally, to see what they had and, and what didn't end up making it on. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's and it's really for people who don't know, you know, the, the inner workings of how SNL works, they'd be surprised how chaotic this is and how last minute it is. And this is something we talked about on the podcast last week with Charles Barkley. It really just felt like a lot of those sketches were thrown together at the last minute, were put on the air when they weren't ready. And again, this isn't this has nothing to do with the uh the writers or the performers or anything. A lot of the times it's just time. Like, well, this sketch, we need something there that's three minutes and this other one was five and we have to cut it. So it really is to the testament of the producers and writers and cast that there's a show on the air every week at all. In fact, in fact, this is something Lauren Michaels has said before. And I, I, I love repeating this quote because it kind of gets people into the mindset of SNL that, you know, Lauren says, we don't go on the air because the show is ready. We go on the air because it's 1130. And that's the thing to his testament that they still managed to do this. But, yeah, that's the problem that there a lot of problems would be solved on SNL if they just made it a taped show where they could control every minute of it down to the last second. But that would ruin some of the spirit and energy of it. But, yeah, that's the thing with SNL that what the plan that the, the show that they plan isn't necessarily the show that makes it to the air. And that's kind of the thing you always have to remember that the, the performers are just out there doing their best with the material that's being thrown at them at the last second. So sometimes that's just the way it goes. All right, well, let's preview next week here as the show sallies forth. Host Bill Hader with musical guest Arcade Fire. This will be Bill's uh, second time hosting. He hosted about three and a half years ago, back in October 2014. Mario, how are you feeling about Bill Hader coming into this episode? I think if anybody comes up here out here and trashes Bill Hader, they should not be allowed to be on an SNL podcast. Mm. He is clearly one of the better SNL cast members of all time. And a couple of years ago, I did a, uh, a countdown, my SNL Funny 115, where I named uh, Taryn Killam as probably the best SNL cast member since Will Ferrell. And oh boy, did I hear about it from the Bill Hader fans. So I will begrudging, I will, I will tip my cap and say, okay, Bill Hader and Taryn Killam, perhaps the best two male cast members since Will Ferrell. But yeah, I love Bill Hader. He brings a, uh, a certain, uh, I don't even know what to say, a certain style to each, to an SNL sketch that other performers generally don't have. He can do so many different voices. He's so versatile. He breaks so easy, which again might be seen as a flaw, but it's, it's charming with him because he cracks so easy. But I just love Bill Hader in the show. You know the writers are going to bring their A games up next week with he's, when he's back because he is a he is a Will Ferrellian legend among SNL people. People love him. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you're going to agree with me on this, right? You love Bill Hader. Yeah, I was one of those people that was speaking up against uh, <laughs> your anti-Bill Hader sentiment. Yeah, I mean Bill might be my second favorite cast member of all time, only below Phil Hartman. I just think, and I think both of those guys actually have a lot in common in terms of. Being the glue, but also being so, as you said, kind of versatile in what they can do. They can be the normal person. They can be the crazy person. They can host game shows. They can be part of game shows. They can do impressions. They can really do so, so much. I thought he did a really great job the last time he was on back in 2014. So I'm really excited to see what he brings. You know, 
we talked about the the excitement of having b- people being on the stage with Will Ferrell. I, I wonder if the same thing's going to happen with Bill Hader. Are you expecting any alumni cameos? We really didn't get that with Will Ferrell, which kind of surprised me. Yeah, with Will Ferrell, it was very interesting when you watch that show. It really felt like each SNL cast member wanted their moment to work with Will Ferrell. So every single person got a sketch. It was like their showcase with Will, just so they could, you know, die one day, say, I did a sketch with Will Ferrell. I don't know if Bill Hader will be in that uh, level of prestige yet. He, you could argue he should be. I don't know, because he hasn't been gone that long. Like, Will Ferrell has been gone for so long now, but Hader is still relatively recent. I expect we'll get a lot of cameos. I don't think we'll get that. This is a bucket list moment to act with Bill Hader like you had with Ferrell. But, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if we get my old friend Kristen Wiig back there. I wouldn't be shocked if we get some other people. But That's what I think it's probably going to be next week. But... In SNL's defense, they have backed off on doing that a lot in recent uh, months and years. So maybe they won't. I don't know. But I, I have to say in my defense, you said my uh, naysaying of Bill Hader. When I when I said that Taron Killam was the strongest S- male SNL cast member of that era, I put Bill Hader very close behind him at number two. So it's not like I don't like him. I love Bill Hader. It's just, I'm just a big Taron Killam fan. I'm just throwing shade at you like they, we did with Keenan this episode. <laughs> so wait, I have to... Stop acting after so after, stop writing after so many months. <laughs> yeah, like three. No, 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 no never stop <laughs> writing, Mario. Speaking of writing, how can people follow you on social media, and what do you have working on with your podcast and your writing? Okay, my big thing, obviously, I write about Survivor. I do a website called the Funny One Fifteen. Just go to funny115.com. It's my magnum opus. I've been working on basically for about fourteen years now, where I count down all the funniest moments of Survivor history. It's got about 3 million readers, so it's it's relatively popular. So that's my big one. And then the other one I'm really proud of is I have my uh, my movie podcast, Staff Picks, where we talk about underrated and underloved movies out there. It's uh, It just started in January. It's only two months old, but it's already doubled in audience in that time. It's, it's actually drawing in pretty good numbers by now, and I'm really proud of the episodes. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just people getting on to talk about movies that are underrated. So if you ever want a good recommendation and you want to hear funny people talk about movies and make good points about them, just check out staffpicks.podbean.com. You can always follow me at a Mike Bloom type on Twitter, doing a bunch of exit press for reality shows and podcasts out there. I plug them all on my Twitter, so be sure to check it out there. Mario, thank you as per usual for your great work. Thank you, Will from America. Follow him at Will from America on Twitter to hear his takes about music. He'll be back next week to give his takes on Arcade Fire, who I think have been on, this might be their fourth time on the show, so I'm sure he has some thoughts there. Thank you all so, so much for listening. We'll be back next week talking about SNL episode 16 with Bill Hader. For now, take care. Bye-bye.